Good morning, everyone. Glad to have you here. Glad to have you joining us online. Uh, we're continuing in our summer series on doctrine, and uh, we started with God, and then last week we talked about our enemy, Satan, and seems natural that we would then talk about man, or mankind, humanity. And there's a sense in which all doctrine is either theology or ontology. So you're either talking about God, because he's God, or you're talking about man and our relationship with God. And so, you know, when you look at a theology book, a doctrine book, when you look at the Bible from cover to cover, it's all about God, it's all about man. And so there's a sense in which, you know, roughly half of the things I could talk about in all of the Bible are about man, and I'm not going to talk about them all today. But there is a reality about who we are as people that we need to regain, and we need to understand that the Bible teaches us about ourselves. What is most important for us to know as human beings? What are our deepest questions that humanity asks itself? What fundamentally makes us ourself and our personhood, and more personally makes us us? Why am I me and you you? And so this part of doctrine gets philosophical at times, and I obviously can't cover all of that, but we need to understand that the Bible speaks directly to who we are as human beings and answers those questions for us. In Shakespeare's play, As You Like It, the very pessimistic character Jacques is present in many of the scenes but he actually adds nothing to the plot. If you follow his character through the play, he doesn't move the plot forward, doesn't change anything that happens. He merely observes. And he offers the audience his observations on what's taking place. And it's Jacques that begins one of Shakespeare's most famous speeches in this way. He says, all the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts. Well, William Shakespeare was not a theologian, but if the world is something like a play, and there's lots of good analogies we could make from that, it seems like the human civilization, certainly Western culture, has completely lost the plot. We have lost the script on what it means to be human. If there was ever a generation, if there was ever a culture, if there was ever a people who are searching in every direction and grasping at every thread of possible identity and meaning, I would say it is our present one now. We've deliberately taken God off of the stage and out of the spotlight, and we've placed ourselves at the center of the stage and in the spotlight and suddenly found that we have nothing coherent to tell ourselves or to explain who we are or even know what personhood is. This is a generation, in fact, that really it's been a century or two now that has searched to find ways to explain ourselves completely apart from God, but have ended up several hundred years after the Renaissance with no healthy idea of what humanity is or who we are. Physically, we're obsessed with our body image, our sex, our gender expression, body modification. You can even Google stuff like transspeciesism and posthumanism. We just do not accept our physical bodies as being intrinsic to who we are, but rather we make 
heroic efforts on a scale from trivially cosmetic to life-threateningly surgical in order to force our body to conform to an internal identity, which itself is in crisis. Or we look to Instagram filters or to virtual reality to try to just leave our bodies behind and live in a fantasy version of our personhood. On the other hand, our cultures place virtually all of its identity not on the body but on the internal cognitive self alone. Just our conscience perception of ourself, what most people consider their true self, implying that our true identity is unhooked or detached from our bodies. And so we need to just think about who is the true internal us and then try and force that image onto our external reality. And yet at the same time, even with those internal focus on our consciousness and true self, there's never been a generation that suffers more from depression, discontent, dysphoria, dysmorphia, dissonance, disorder, and 20 other diswords that I could come up with that apply to our mental and emotional illness and suffering. And that results in drug abuse and self-medication and suicide or years of therapy or hoping that pharmaceutical researchers will discover for us some stronger or more clever drug to just suppress the dysfunction we feel. Or we try to deny our physical bodies, or we are displeased with who our true self is, and we try to unhitch our personhood from those things. But we are both physical and cognitive. We are bodies and souls, as Christianity would say. We are soulish beings. But that's not being reconciled well at all in our culture. And it's not just a problem out there in culture. It's not just the world and all those crazy people. It's personal. It's present in each one of us. We face dysfunction in our bodies. We face disquiet in our soul. We feel the questions that arise from our disordered humanity. We can feel unhitched from our true identity. And we can be personally searching for the plot, searching for the script in our lives, wondering where did we lose it? Where did we get off the rails? And how do I get it back? All of us feel that. All of us feel that from time to time, and even for long stretches of our lives. So it really feels like mankind has lost the script of what it means to be human. It feels at times like we've lost the script of what our identity is and who we're meant to be. And so what do we need? We need our roles to be redeemed and made right and clear again. We need to know the writer, and we need to know what he intended. So the Bible does tell us what it means to be human. It even anticipates that we will lose the script and then provides for us a way back to find the script again. And so if you're looking for the script, of course we can look to Scripture to find how to regain it. So what does it mean to be human? Who are we? Well, first of all, as Allison mentioned, we are created in God's image. Genesis 2.7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So we're created, and I would use the word designed, because we have a purpose. We're something like angels and something like an animals, but we are neither angels nor animals. When Psalm 8 asks the question, What is man? The answer is neither angelic nor animal. But as he writes in Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. 
and crowned him with glory and honor, and you've given him dominion over the works of your hands, all sheep and oxen and also beasts of the field and birds of the heavens and all living things. And so we're not angels and we're not animals. We're something special that God has designed in between. And that's where the beginning of our doctrine of humanity, of mankind, begins, that we are a unique creation designed by God, not like anything else he's created. And that's important. It means a lot to everything about who we are. What does it mean? Well, practically, it means that we are personal, We're individuals. We're unique. I'm not you and you're not me. And we're not just personal, but we're interpersonal. We're relational. We're meant to be in community and relate to one another. We we lose something when we're not in relationship. We're conscious. We're self-aware of ourselves. We know who we are. We know who you are, and we're able to distinguish ourselves from others. We're intelligent. We're processors of reason and words and math. And there's a whole rabbit hole you can go down in terms of how the scientific community even tries to deal with consciousness and what words are. Because if you're a materialist, how can anything material interact with something that's immaterial? And what is a word? (laughs) What is a thought? What is love? How do neurons firing in a material brain interact with the immaterial? Honestly, there are whole chapters and books and decades of research by philosophers and scientists who can't answer that question. They simply assume it on belief that we can deal with the immaterial, but they can't ascribe it to a soul because we don't have souls. You can't weigh a soul so it doesn't exist. But we are intellectual. We're processors of reason and math. We have the ability to know that we know Scientists aren't even really sure how we do that either. We're creative. We recreate. The word recreation. We recreate. We follow our creator in his ability to create. And we recreate as we recreate. We have free agency to make decisions. We have authority. We have a place and an order. You remember that Satan and his angels did not keep their order in heaven, but they left their appointed order. We have been given an order, and we have been given an authority by God. That's practically how we are made in God's image. Intrinsically, we have value and worth. That means that the Christian faith and the Bible would teach this, that To see any person, whether it's a baby still in the womb, whether it's an athlete winning a gold medal, a teenager with Down syndrome in the park, an artist painting a sunset, an addict taking their first needle of the day, an academic solving an equation, or an elderly person lying in a nursing home unable to care for themselves, to see any person at all is to see an image-bearer of God, is to see in every person a fading but real glimpse of glory and worth and the value of God in every person. Everyone bears the image and likeness of God, we're told in Genesis 1.26. Everyone is to some faded degree participating in the purpose we were intended for. So practically, we're made in the image of God. Intrinsically, 
we are made in the image of God. And purposefully, we have an image of God, which originally is to steward creation in our appointed roles in order to multiply worship and glory to God as his image bearers. If you just take Genesis chapter 1, where God wraps everything up on the sixth day, and he says, everything is good, and you project the seventh day of creation out into eternity as God intended, you would have mankind, man and wife, living together, multiplying image-bearing of God, thousands, ten thousands, billions, I don't know what God intended. But the whole purpose of man was to take care of the creation and steward the creation that God had given to provide for man, basically to be provided for by God from all the trees, all the fruit, all the bounty of creation, care for creation, and multiply my image-bearing into the universe. That's man's purpose. That's that was, that's the end of Genesis chapter 1. Just multiply the glory of God and make more image bearers and more worshipers and more glorifiers of God as you tend to this perfect creation. That was our purpose as image bearers. But it's been lost. It's been distorted and it's been rejected by mankind. And that is the script we've lost. That's what we need to recover. It needs to be redeemed. There's another way in which we have to talk about ourselves as human beings, as as mankind. In order to understand ourselves, we have to understand that we are body and soul. Genesis 2.7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So the biblical view of our personhood is that we are embodied souls. And notice the order in which we are made by God. It's the opposite, if you think about it, of how people generally today think of identity and personhood. God did not make a soul or a consciousness or a self called Adam and then look around creation trying to find a place to put that person. He did not, as Sam Albury describes, it's not as if the soul of Adam is the real person and his body was the equivalent of a Tupperware container to put it in. God made a body and he breathed his life into it. He breathed the soul or the spirit into the body, giving God-breathed life that no other creature received. And so we are embodied souls, and the two can't be separated. You cannot try to recover the script of humanity by separating body and soul, making material and spirit something different. The body is God's idea. Your body is God's idea for you. It means something important to God, and it means something important to you. Can that structure or that formation of ourselves become disordered by the fall and by sin? Yes, and we'll see that in just a moment. Our bodies and souls do get unstructured. They do get disordered. But to approach our identity as something that can be unhooked from our physical being falls outside of the wisdom of God, who has written and designed us as our creator. We're written into our life and designed for a purpose, and God has given us a body and a soul to accomplish that purpose. Now, that's just a tiny bit that I can cover in this session about sort of who humans are. That's that's what a human is. Body and soul, created by God, purpose with intrinsic value, with practical realities of how we function, to have bodies and souls, to have intelligence and creativity and agency and ability like no other animal, to have value and worth. 
And that's just a couple of verses out of Genesis. The whole Bible, (laughs) if you want to get the whole script back, just keep reading, talks about who we are. That's how God created us. But as I started out saying, I said, we've lost the script. We've rejected the script of what it means to be human as God designed us. And that's very important, but a very difficult reality of the doctrine of mankind. Because when you talk about the doctrine of mankind, you have to talk about how we lost the script and what we've become. And of course, that starts with the fall into sin. Satan, we learned last week, is the originator of sin. But we are willing participants in that sin in Genesis 3.6. When, when Satan decided he would like to try to be like God, he offered us the same temptation. He came to Eve and to Adam and he said, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, God's holding out on you. You know, God's holding the best stuff back. He told you not to eat of that tree. You should eat of that tree because then you'll become like him. And so don't listen to God because, you know, he's trying to hold you back from everything that you could be. Satan basically saying, be all you could be, Adam and Eve. You know, don't let anybody tell you to be anything other than who you are. Ever heard that message before? Well, we willingly participated in that sin, and so the reality of mankind and human nature today is that we've inherited the sin nature of Adam. Romans 5.12 tells us in 18 to 19. We are now sinners by nature, because we have fallen into sin. And that maybe needs a little bit of explanation. We don't become sinners by sinning. We sin because we are sinners. And it's important that as Christians we get that organized right because kind of the caricature of Christianity out there in the world and in Hollywood, and you might see it on TV, is that, you know, bad people sin, and then when you sin, you become, you know, unqualified. And it's because you sin that you no longer qualify for God and you have to stop sinning in order to qualify. That's not actually Christianity. That's kind of a weird distortion of it. The Bible clearly teaches that the only reason we sin is because we are sinners. The only people who participate in sin are those that are by nature sinners. And that's all of us. And I'll just use the example here maybe of a horse thief. When a horse thief steals a horse, are they a thief after they steal the horse or before they steal the horse? Because if they weren't a thief... They wouldn't steal the horse. I mean, people who aren't thieves don't steal. So if he steals a horse, he was a thief before the horse was stolen. That's how our sin works. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. Because if we weren't sinners, we wouldn't have sinned. And it's very important that we understand that by our nature, we cannot measure up to the qualities and standards of God. Some people may think this isn't fair. Or perhaps they think they would have chosen differently, that their explanation of why they should not be considered guilty, I guess, if they say, that's not fair, Paul, I shouldn't be considered guilty because I inherited the nature of Adam, I I guess the root of their argument would be, if God had only made me first, I wouldn't have fallen. I know most of you, and I don't buy any of that. So not only do I not buy it for you or for me, I don't buy it for anybody, and not only do I not buy it for anybody I've ever met on this planet being morally superior to Adam, I just, it just isn't what Scripture indicates is true. We do inherit the sin nature of Adam, and as unfair as that might sound, it's because we all willfully would join Adam in his sin. 
So Adam is our federal head. He is the first Adam, the, indicate, the, the natural head of humanity, and we inherit who he is. Well, there's an implication of that. Since the day that Adam used his moral will to disobey God, and although this seems counterintuitive, we actually lost our moral will at that point in time. Romans 7, 5 and 21 to 24 is where you'd go to for that. But even though it seems to you, as, as we look out at humanity, it seems like we can do whatever we want, anytime we want, and we do whatever we want, anytime we want, to whoever we want, in whatever condition we want to do it. And that's what it looks like. But the reality of what we see in the world is that actually humanity can't stop sinning. We can't will ourselves to choose purity and godliness at every point of our being. We are literally unable to choose righteousness. When Adam chose to sin, he actually eliminated moral will from humanity. On our own, we could never choose God. We are captive to sinfulness. We are enslaved to rebellion. When we look around the world, what we see is a human race that cannot stop damaging ourselves and our world. Paul says in Romans 7 that there is a battle taking place in his body that makes him captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He's captive to it. He has no moral will or moral agency to do any different than to be a sinner. And Jesus says in John 8, That everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You can't help but sin. And that's important to remember for ourselves. It's important to remember as we engage with the world. Sometimes we can get really riled up by what's going on in politics or what's going on in the school system or what somebody says or does or what some group of people are saying. And you know what? Sinners are going to sin. Like we, we can't be surprised by these things. We can fight for justice. We can, you know, pursue godliness. We can defend the undefendable. But don't be surprised when sinners sin, because they're going to. Now, we still have free agency. We can make moral decisions. You can hear your protests already. You know, I make decisions. I have freedom. I can be a good person. I can help an old lady across the street. I can decide who I marry, where I work. I can decide to, to work for an ethical company as opposed to an unethical company. I can decide to have a good career rather than a criminal career. I feel like I have moral agency. Well, you have moral agency. You have free agency in decisions, but you don't have moral will. And that free agency makes us morally responsible. But until we are set free by the regeneration of God, by the work of his son, our only will is to use our agency ultimately to resist God. Now, the doctrinal term for this is traditionally total depravity. And people don't like that phrase. So it's sometimes more politely and accurately referred to by its consequence, which is complete inability. I feel like I'd rather be completely enabled than totally depraved. And so... When we hear total depravity, we sometimes instinctively protest. We think, wait a minute. I mean, I buy it, Paul. I, I buy that I'm a sinner. I get it. I'm not perfect, but I'm not totally depraved. That seems a bit much. But that protest of total depravity in terms of our humanness, in terms of our being people, and, I, and I'm pushing on this because you won't understand your life and you won't understand Christianity unless you get this. The protest of total depravity mainly comes from misunderstanding the term. Total depravity of man does not mean that we are all as bad as we could possibly be. 
that our depravity is complete. Rather, it means that of all the areas of our humanness, of all the areas of our personhood that could possibly be touched by sin, all of them are, to some degree. There is no aspect of our person that's not distorted by the presence of sin, we read in Romans 7.18. We cannot love, speak, act, relate, do justice, express mercy, share, work, encourage, or function in any part of our life without some flaw or distortion of sin diminishing it, demeaning it, fading it from protection. And it's in that sense that we are totally depraved, in that sense that we are totally affected by sin. Just think about it for yourself. Name one person in your life that you've known for more than three minutes that you have a perfect relationship with, that you've never argued, never thought ill of them at all, they've never harmed you, you've never harmed them, not even a little bit. Or or think about your whole life. Can you recall one day where you acted perfectly? No wrong thought, no wrong motive, no wrong behavior. You were perfect for just one day. Or can you think of just one aspect of your personality as how you express yourself that you expressed perfectly? That you can go to your friends and you say, I am perfectly selfless. And I am so humble. (laughs) That's total depravity. It's just the reality that there is no part of our nature that sin has not impacted to some point. And by that, we fall short. We miss the mark of the perfection that God created us for. And that's what leads to complete inability. That's why some people just call it complete inability, because the upshot of it is, is we're unable to save ourselves. This is the Christian faith. This is the heart of the relationship between God and man. We are unable to earn our own way out of our predicament, Ephesians 4.18 says. We are unable to choose God, Romans 8.8. We can choose to be good from time to time. Maybe even many times we can choose to be good, but our goodness is not godliness. We cannot qualify ourselves to stand in the presence of God on our own righteousness. We are not vessels of gold, but we are jars of clay. The Bible addresses that as a result of the fall, we've lost our true image-bearing of God. Paul says we seem like jars of clay. Peter says that this present state is like a tent that can just fold up. And so just as our moral souls are not as God intended them, neither are our bodies as God intended them. Human beings have lost the script in every sense of the word and in every sense of the world. Nothing is, it seems, as the writer originally intended it. We act immorally, and we're physically weakened. We're affected by the curse and the effects of sin. We struggle with the dysmorphias and dysfunctions that I talked about in the introduction. We suffer the consequences of being embodied souls as we are impacted on all sides in our humanity, from either insults of friends to illness of the world to international conflict. We are fallen from where God intended us. The Bible is clear about the state of humankind. The Bible is brutally honest about the whole world, all human beings, and each one of us in our own individual lives, that we have completely lost the script of what it means to be human the way God intended. We have all at some point been groping and grasping to find the script again, and we need to get the script back. 
to get who we are and what our role is as human beings back again. So I conclude with the hope of regaining the script. Scripture shows us who we are again. The Bible is an account of how we can recover the script. God expected that we would lose the script, and he gave us a way to get it back. Today we're going to consider how God draws us back to our lost humanity through Jesus, the new man, and the good news of the gospel message of restored glory and a recovered script. In order to get his creation back on the script, the writer had to enter into his own play. This is how this analogy of a play and, and, and religion actually works in creation, right? It's as if, like, who is Shakespeare to Jacques and to Hamlet, right? Like, Hamlet knows all the other characters in the play. Jacques knows and can observe on the things taking place in the play. But when you think of if the world is a play, then who is Shakespeare, the writer? He's outside the play. Like, he's in another dimension. We can't... Hamlet can't know or touch Shakespeare. Shakespeare made Hamlet, and he's on the page. Well, that's a great analogy because the writer of our play went into the pages. It's like Shakespeare wrote himself into the script. And so the writer came down to get his creation back on the script again. He comes down as Jesus, as the second Adam. And I'll point you again to a sermon I gave this past December. On the 12th of December in 2021, I did a whole message on Jesus as the second Adam. If you just want to focus in on how Jesus is the new man, the Adam Adam was intended to be. By Jesus coming into the play, by God writing himself into the script, we have a second and a final Adam. And Jesus, as a body and a spirit, is the personal, perfect expression of humanity, present to replace Adam, and to replace Adam as our federal head, to replace Adam as our representative, so that we have a choice now no longer to be represented by Adam and sinful by nature, but to be represented by Jesus and righteous by his nature. 1 Corinthians 15 says, The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, and the second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. That's us. So we are like him. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven can also be us. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's the hope. That's the glory. That's getting back on script. Jesus came to redeem and to restore and to renew humanity and our purpose. That is to recover our lost image-bearing of God because he is the perfect image of God. He came by his gospel to multiply the the image-bearers of God. Remember our original purpose was to multiply worship, was to multiply image-bearing, was to multiply glory, glory to God? Well, Jesus comes as the second Adam and says, let's get that back on track again. By my gospel, you can be saved and have my righteousness. You can bear my imprint. Fading now, faded, not perfect yet, but the gospel is multiplying worship. It's multiplying image bearers of God across the face of the earth as we were originally intended to do. Jesus has come to reorder what we have disordered in our lives and in creation. 
We've been terrible stewards of creation. We've been terrible stewards of our own body. Jesus has come to say, I'm going to remake all of this new. I'm going to heal your illness. I'm going to remake your spirit. You are going to be righteous in my image. And eventually, one day, he's going to recreate all creation again and make it perfect again. Romans 8 says that creation is going to follow our redemption into glory. That as we are glorified, creation is going to get carried along into perfection again. This is the whole story of the Bible, is getting the script back again. Getting back to where God intended us to be. He's come bodily in person, and he has sent his spirit in order for us to find the script again. To know who we are, why we exist, what purpose we have, how we function, how we're meant to flourish, how to recover what we've lost. And God does this through his son, Jesus Christ, and by the good news of his gospel. When we talk about the gospel as Christians, we often think about the gospel in the past and the future. We think about the gospel in terms of, I know 2,000 years ago that God sent his son and Jesus came and he died on the cross and he was resurrected. He died for my sins and was resurrected for my justification. That's the gospel. I know the gospel past. Or as Christians, we think about the gospel future. The good news is, I'm saved and I'm going to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Yeah, there is gospel past, there is gospel future, but we forget this part right here, right now. There's a gospel now. Jesus came to help us now, not just in the past, not just in the future. It's not just what we're just biding our time to get there. Jesus came to give us the gospel, and the good news of the gospel as it impacts our lives, as I try to communicate week after week here, is the gospel is for now, and the gospel is changing us now. It's good news for us now. We can recover the script now. We can discover our true identity now. We can know who we are in Christ Jesus now. We can regain the plot, regain the purpose. We can heal the dysfunction now through the gospel. It's the gospel of now. There is a flourishing. There is a joy. There is an image bearing. There is a value that God has for us. And it's not just in the past, and it's not just waiting for us in heaven. It's here today. What Jesus has done and will do is more than just past and future. It's now in this world. Those who trust in Jesus are regenerated by divine grace and are given a new nature and are given a new name and are made a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Now, present tense, Paul is talking. The old has passed away and the new has come. And so when we think about humanity, we think about the culture, we think about the world we live in, we think about ourselves. We can recover what has been lost starting now. We can regain the script. St. Augustine, writing in roughly 400 AD in his book Confessions, which I highly recommend you read. It's an incredible book. He says, You, God, have formed us for yourself, and our hearts will, are restless until they find their rest in you. Basically, Augustine says, we've lost the script, and we're going to be dysfunctional until we get the script again. And the script is that we're meant to be with God. If it's true that humanity has lost the script of how to be truly human, then Christian doctrine would suggest that we need to find the writer, that we will experience nothing but restless searching until we know who the writer is and have the script in our hands again. And if that's true in your life today, if it feels like you have lost the script personally, or that some part of your life is disordered, 
that it is without purpose, that you don't know what your spot is on the stage or what your next line is supposed to be, then look to the script. The really, really good news that we have is that the writer wants us to have the script. And he's entered into the play, into this creation, in order to give us the script and reveal what it is. And he wants us to have the power to act out the script in our lives. The Apostle Paul is actually addressing the philosophers and the intellectuals and the politicians and the culture shapers in the Areopagus and market in Athens. And as he's standing there in Athens, the, the pinnacle of, of secular culture in the area, talking to all of these learned people, he says in Acts 17, he says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Why did he do it? That they should seek God and perhaps find their way towards him and find him Yet, he's actually not far from each one of us. Paul is basically saying, God has given us this civilization, he's given us these nations, he's given us this structure, he's given us this time in the world as nations, as people, in order to find their way back to the script. And in fact, he's not that far away, he's right there. The whole point of the Christian faith is we have a designer, we have a director. And even to press the analogy We may be many characters who are on the pages of his story, but he has entered into the book from the outside. And we don't have to grope and search to find him on our own way, but we can find him because he's right here near at hand, not far from any of us. What do I mean when I say that? I mean that if you're sitting here today or listening online and you still don't feel like you know God and have a relationship with him, I can almost guarantee this is true from Acts 17. That this is not the first time you've heard of God or even of Jesus. In fact, just as Paul says, Jesus has been right there on the edge of your life for years, if not decades. He has been close at hand to you your whole life. In fact, you've probably tried to avoid him because he's been there so much. You've known about him. You've known where his house is. You know who his friends are. You keep running into him and them over and over and over again. He's still not far from you, Paul would say. He's right near at hand. And if you don't know him, he wants you to know him. You can get the script to your life back. You can be restored to your proper place and destiny. You can know the writer who loves you and made you. Romans 10.9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll get the script back. That's what it means to be human. We're just looking for the script. And God's kind to say, here it is. You can have it back. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word this morning. And uh, we're about to enter into a time of communion now where we get to fellowship with you in just a staggering thought that we get to have this meal with you, that we get to commune with you, that you've made us soulish beings that can have a spirit that talks to you, that interacts with you, that resonates with you. So, Father, as we take communion now, I just pray that we would consider who we are, our humanity, and all the glory that you want to restore to us as you intended us originally, and how thankful we are that Jesus Christ came as we're celebrating in this meal now to live the perfect life we couldn't live, to go to the cross, to give his body and his blood to give us the script back. 
to give us salvation, to give us relationship with you, to put you back on center stage and put the spotlight on you and know our role, know our purpose. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I also have my helpers come forward. I went a little long.